If you want to be at the tip of the spear of sports performance, the answer is simple. Simply Faster is your insider's edge to maximize results with the highest quality premier sports equipment in the business. Visit Simply Faster and level up. Welcome everyone to the Companions of the Compendium podcast. Today, I have a very special treat in the realm of strength and conditioning and in NFL football. So we're taking a little bit of a different direction this week from our traditional track and field conversation and talk, but I'm sure uh, Buddy Morris, who is with me today, is going to have plenty to say about that and how it's relevant and uh, related to his sport and all the things that he do he does because good coaching is good coaching. Buddy is entering into his eighth season this year because we just completed one with the Arizona Cardinals and he's had over 39 years of coaching experience including 20 years at the collegiate level and now going on 11 at the NFL. Buddy has seen it all and has been involved with gold medalists, pro football hall of famers, numerous NFL first round draft picks, all Americans at the collegiate level. Buddy is an unvarnished unfiltered source of reality that we all need to hear and he is a force of nature welcome buddy morris to the companions of the compendium podcast i'm so happy to have you wait a minute i'm waiting for this buddy morris guy to come on who the fuck is <laughs> that guy you just described who the fuck is that i can't wait to hear, i can't wait to hear this guy when is he coming on right uh it's a great honor and privilege for me uh that you asked me I was overwhelmed and honored. I listened to your podcast, obviously, with Dr. Ken Clark and Derek Hansen. And I have known Derek for years and was fortunate enough, you know, to know Charlie Francis, the late Charlie Francis, very well. I obviously was really a great influence on me early in my career, which I was very fortunate, uh, but very honored to be here. I will apologize for one thing, as you and I spoke, the word fuck is part of my vocabulary as it is for every Pittsburgher. Uh, I called my mother the other day. My mother's still alive. She's 87 years old. Here's a woman who at the age of 84, five retired from a bank as a bank teller. Never missed a day at work. Raised five boys by herself. Uh, obviously, we had public assistance and, you know, my mother's salary. But uh, my mother's the toughest son of a bitch I know. But I told her, she goes, how are you feeling? I said, I'm tired. She goes, shut the fuck up. <laughs> I'm like, What? She goes, shut the fuck up. When you've worked 40 some years in a bank and you retired 84 and you raised five boys, then you can be tired. I no longer tell people I'm tired, but the F word is part of my vocabulary coming from Pittsburgh. And before we go any further, I got to give a huge shout out, thoughts and prayers with Tiger Woods mm -hmm. and, and his family, his children, and his entire family. Thank God he's okay. Probably had some great physicians and surgeons working on him, but uh, thoughts and prayers uh, to Tiger Woods. Great athlete, a great individual, great human being. And I, I'm fortunate enough to have a lot of those guys here in Arizona. But again, thank you very much for the opportunity. Absolutely, Coach. And yeah, I echo those thoughts with Tiger. It actually hit me a lot harder than I was expecting. And I think probably because been through a, a lot, you know, he's one of those few people that is one of these prodigies that has gone in, a, in the full arc, being this amazing rise, game changer athlete, and then having things go on in his his personal life and overcoming those and, and then writing the ship, so to speak, in terms of his physical performance and overcoming a lot of these injuries and surgeries and, and all that stuff. And, you know, watching him and his son play golf together this summer was just like one of the most beautiful things. And as a, as a coach who wants to eventually be able to enjoy the sports I love with my daughters, 
that really touched me deeply. And when I heard possible compound fractures and, and all this kind of stuff, I'm just thinking, what an absolutely terrible thing. But what a beautiful story it has the potential to be if he's able to come back and play again and knowing how intensive a person he is and how much golf means to him, that would be probably the exclamation point to a pretty awesome career if he's able to do that. And if anybody's able to do it, he has the means and resources to do it. A key that you just picked said is how much golf means to him. I'm fortunate enough here in Arizona to have a kid named, not a kid, a young man named Buda Baker. And Buda Baker is what you want in a football player, especially a young one. And the reason I say that is I know Buda Baker doesn't like to lift weights, but Buda Baker knows I need to do the things I don't like to do in order to become the player I want to become. But he comes in four days a week. He doesn't go to his personal terrorist. These guys have so many of these idiots out there who are just using them for, you know, Snapchat, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. They're just trying to, trying to market themselves, sell a product, sell themselves. You know, I'm the foot expert. I'm the balance expert. I'm the speed expert. I got news for you, right? There's no expert in anything. What I think what separates the great coaches from the average is, number one, their system continues to involve, evolve. I tell people I don't have a philosophy. I think philosophies are for philosophers. I don't give two shits if a tree makes a fucking noise when it falls in the woods and nobody's around or not. My goal is to expand my or evolve my system from what I've learned from some great coaches. And I've been around some of the best of the best and in all sports. But I have to, I also understand that, you know what? That's his sport. How can I apply that to my sport? Because this is my sport. And I have a sport where there's multiple positions and there's multiple hierarchies of equalities that must be developed for each one of those positions. When you're a young general athlete, you can get away with anything. Just, you know, just teach them basic movement patterns. They'll increase force output just by becoming technically efficient. Same thing with an elite athlete. Everybody's chasing force outputs and outputs. How about just master the skill of the movement and outputs will improve automatically. Simply because you're not bleeding force or leaking energy. You don't have energy leaks like Dan Pat talks about because you're mechanically efficient. More mechanically efficient, greater my outputs. The body's not stupid. It's going to protect itself. So, I, you know, a lot of times all these gurus out there with their corrective exercises, which all of that stuff is bullshit too. You know, a lot of times the best correction is take a player off the bar. Quit chasing numbers. I'd rather see a perfect movement pattern than just throwing another plate on a bar and say, oh, everybody squatted 800 pounds. I don't give a shit. When the game starts, they're not going to put a power rack at midcourt. They're not going to put a power rack at 50-yard line. They're not going to put a power rack on a platform in the middle of the ice rink and say, okay, boys, have at it. That's not what sports is about. Yeah, strength is important, but it's one of the many spokes in a wheel that help develop an athlete. And you have to understand, athletes get strong via multiple means. You know, med ball throws, jumps, plyos, sprinting. It's just not about the weight room. And I think that's where I find a lot of common mistakes that young coaches make. They're more concerned about, you know, adding another plate to the bar when the greatest force producer in the world is sprinting. What exercise do you know that you can do in the weight room that's going to mimic the force output of sprinting? Five times ground reaction forces up five to six times muscular skeletal forces. We know in the weight room, as weight goes up, velocity goes down. 
the greatest force producer in the world is max velocity. There's nothing, nothing in this weight room that I will ever give my athletes that will mimic that production. So last year, you know, with the COVID virus, everybody was panicking. I got to get my guys. So what am I going to do? Weight room my stuff. I told my staff of Mark and Evan, I said, we're just going to do more sprint work. Everybody is because it's the greatest force producer. We're just going to do more plyos because people don't take into account. These are athletes. Your best athlete isn't your strongest athlete, number one. Number two, the weight room is very general to that. <clears throat> so let me make this very, very, real quick point. The higher, the more elite the athlete, the higher the level the athlete becomes, the greater their output, the greater output, greater cost. You only have so many recovery and energy, so much recovery and energy available, resources available to the human body. So why during the season are you trying to kill them in the weight room? Do I want my outputs to be specific, which is the sport itself, or the non-specific or the general? I don't think anybody's willing to risk tapping in to what they are trying to recover from on Sundays. Sunday's my max effort, sometimes Saturday, sometimes Thursday. But I know Corey Schlesinger very well. And Corey and I are very good friends. And Corey's a strength coach for the Phoenix Suns. And, well, he's basketball. I'm like, yeah, I can learn a lot because I get a different perspective. But we understand that, you know, the higher the level of the athlete, the higher the outputs, higher the outputs, higher the cost. Only so much energy recovery resources available. So now you have to do a cost-benefit analysis. Is the cost worth the benefit of pushing general training during the season? Corey play, guys played nine games in 13 days. So he goes to me, what lifting would you do? I said, you know the stuff you do before the game, the general movement prep and some med ball work? That would have been about it. Right. You ain't going to take him in a weight room and ask him to get a higher – when you got nine games in 13 days, you got to be kidding me. My guys don't start recovering, Ryan, until Wednesday, especially the older athlete. So after our bye week with my older athletes like Larry Fitzgerald, Pat Peterson, Corey, my guys that have been in the league for a long, long time, I give them the option. I say, I'm going to cut you down to one day a week because now as the season goes long, your ability to recover is more important than anything I'm ever going to give you in here. Now, we do some recovery stuff with band work but they all respond great. Remember this, the bottom line is they got to line and play on Sunday. Right. We don't get enough time with them to begin with. Here's what the general public doesn't understand. The end of the season, I can't touch my guys till April. And if there's no off season, I can't touch my guys till July. So you have no idea when each player starts, what they've been doing, what training system they've been under, who they've been under, what guidance, how, how have they prepared themselves uh, from bioenergetic demands. So there's a lot of stuff that has to be determined, you know, with that first couple of days when they come to camp. I don't see my guys. I write programs, but there's no guarantee that they're doing it. You know, we all saw what Gronk did to Anthony Paroli, my buddy down in Tampa, you know, because they asked for a video of things and Gronk just changed his shirt and did everything in the same day. You know, right. again, <laughs> there's a guy who knows how to play the sport. He knows what he needs to do. You know, these veteran guys like, the guys that we have on our, they know what they need to do to prepare, but we're here to help them and guide them. That's why I always give my guys options. Not everything is set in stone. I think the hardest thing for people when they come see me train my athletes is he's off the feet. What the fuck is he doing? I'm got one assistant Evan calls it going rogue. I may see something. I'm like, this thing ain't going to work for today. This is what they're displaying to me. I wrote a block these last two weeks. I got to today and told Mark Naylor, my assistant I just hired last year. I said, nah, we're not doing that today because of what I've seen the last couple of days. I looked at everything, how they respond. 
sometimes you can't make a decision until you see how your athletes are responding to the program. Any, every program looks great on paper, but nobody goes, if you're doing what's on paper because it's on paper, you're making a drastic mistake with your athletes. They're going to display to you on that day their readiness. And we all have to take into account the daily uncertainty of training readiness. We all have to take into account the multifactorial complex nature of the human organism, how it adapts to loading, how it adapts to stress. How are, you know, we again for two hours a day. What are you doing the other 22 hours as an athlete? Are you paying attention to sleep? Are you paying attention uh, to nutrition? Are you paying attention to hydration? Because I don't try eating like shit, try not sleeping, try not drinking water. I don't care how much pre workout you take, it's not going to make up for the fact that the body is not allowed, the body is not recovered. And, the and three you're going to get freaking hurt in that process. Exactly. And you're you're gonna gonna get hurt. Hurt. The yeah. three essentials of life never lose their effectiveness, Ryan. All these other things, we have some of the most advanced recovery methods in the country here in the NFL. In this, in this organization, and Michael Bidwell is a big proponent of support of everything we do. All of them lose their effectiveness over time. My buddy Joel Jamison suggests you only need to do recovery methods three times a year. One, to restore autonomic function. Two, during a block of recovery. And three, during a competitive season. Why are you training now and training any offseason and getting cupping, dry needling? How is the body supposed to achieve a higher level of adaptation when you allow the body to do its own job? So inflammation hormonal disruptions, enzymatic changes, metabolic stress, that's all part of the adaptation process. When you allow the body to do its own job, you don't do that. Now, don't get me wrong. I think a massage once a week is great, but there's other things you can do. I always suggest our guys, yoga, Pilates, get something outside, which is going to help promote recovery and help support what we're doing in the weight room. Just let me know what it is. So I don't have you here this day and then tonight you're going somewhere else. Because as a young athlete, you may get away with it because your superior resources to recover. As an older guy, you're not you're not going to. And th- th- those are just some of my thoughts, real quick off the top of my head as we start to move forward here. But uh, the big thing I stress is young kids should be very general. Teach them to bench. Teach them to squat. Those are, and really, unless you're an Olympic lifter, stay away from Olympic lifting. It's too technically oriented. They have trouble benching and squatting properly. What makes you think they're going to enhance upon the technical score application of Olympic lifting? Now, I know that's blasphemy to all those Olympic lifters out there. There's many roads that lead to Rome. I can get triple extension by jumping on a box, less stress, less cost-benefit analysis. My guys on Olympic lifters, especially when they take breaks during the year. Olympic lifter, an average Olympic lifter, how many years is he trained? A 10,000 rep rule? I still know some people I have talked to Dan will be quicker than that or highly more intelligent, can be faster achieving that elite level. But if we just use 10,000 hours as a, just a marker, just as an average, my guys will never achieve 10,000 hours. Why would I teach them to do something they're going to be less than average at? Exactly. Know? Well, and it's such, a, it's such a limited window of what they're trying to be athletic at. And in your sport, your athletes are trying to be athletic at a lot of different things in a lot of different directions and a lot yep. of different abilities. Look, if I'm going to do jump training, that jump training isn't going to look like high jump because that's not the sport. You know, I'm going to do other methods and modalities to attack whatever that might be for my athlete. You know, and like you said, there's a lot of growth that comes from young people, especially boys, right? Because young boys aren't really even anywhere close to adults have chest hair, or you know what hair until they're, you know, 18, 19 years old. And so most boys are going to grow regardless of how good or bad you are. They're going to get better in spite of you. 
young women. It's a little bit different, but a lot of that has to do just again, managing hours of fitness, not even necessarily what they're training, but just remaining fit throughout the year. And that's more important. And I would say that if I had to ask you what you would want in terms of what's truly important to you is you just want your athletes to be able to compete at a high level first and foremost and have few interruptions due to injury. And that's probably the biggest thing because that's where they're going to help you the most is by being able to play on the competitive competition, doing some of these extra things that look cute or nice. Juice isn't worth the squeeze if they're not playing in those few 16 guaranteed competitions that you guys got over a brutal gladiatorial sport that is unlike anything else, maybe minus rugby. Agreed. Agreed. And you know what? Getting back to young athletes, you know, there can be as much as a four-year difference physically, emotionally, emotionally, and cognitive development in every athlete. You put four, four, 10, 14 year olds next to each other, they don't all look the same. You know, there are different varying levels or different stages or periods in their life of those developmental areas. So you can't compare everybody the same. So, you know, the young kids teach them basic movement skills, teaching, teach them basic lifting. You know, it, it amazes me, Ryan, the number of guys, and, and listen, I'm not against Olympic lifting. I love Olympic lifting as a sport. I love powerlifting as a sport. Learned a lot from other greatest powerlifting coaches in the world, Louis Simmons. But we're not powerlifters. We're not Olympic lifters. We're not bodybuilders. We're athletes who are just trying to get better at the skills that were required by our position on the field. So I always tell people uh, the tactical is underpinned by the technical. Technical is underpinned by the psychological, the psychological, and all of it's underpinned by the physical, which allows our athletes to manifest or display their skills in their movements or their abilities, or abilities through the skills that they display on the field. If you look at the process of attaining sports mastery, technical, technical, psychological, and physical, we only have control as a strength coach, one of them, right. maybe two, uh, physical and, and probably psychological components, especially in young athletes. But if you're only focusing on the physical, you're making a grave mistake as a strength and conditioning coach or coach of physical preparation. You know, we talk about as we get closer to camp, we talk about the, the value of the aerobic system for our athletes and how we want the aerobic system to mimic or to stimulate the muscle into competitive exercise because our anaerobic threshold obviously is a reflection on the oxidative potential of the muscle involved in the work. Our tempo work, which I'm a firm, a tempo is a backbone of our program our tempo work now becomes more position specific. In other words, everybody uses metabolical patterns, but I let my guys say, okay, my skill guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do nine series and there's going to be eight routes in each series of some maximal effort. And you're going to jog back. I'm going to give 35 seconds break, or we're going to push up. We're going to do it again because now I'm covering all bases because I'm a firm believer. There is fatigue present in all injuries. And if you don't want to get injured, don't play the fucking sport. It's that simple. And people to tell you that they can prevent injury, it's total bullshit. You're not going to prevent injury. Injuries are going to happen. You can try to minimize the risk. I think that's the key is minimizing risk and putting them in a position to minimize the risk. But I'm a firm believer that look at soft tissue issues. When muscles become fatigued, you think they have to strain or try and, re try and lengthen more to be able to absorb the energy that's already being produced. So there's, there's fatigue in everything. And people say, well, I got injured at the beginning of practice. Well, what's a residual fatigue? Just like you and I, when we write a program, we have to account for acute, 
immediate cumulative delayed and residual effects. There's acute fatigue, <laughs> there's uh, immediate fatigue, there's cumulative fatigue, there's delayed fatigue, and there's residual fatigue, just as like there's all those different effects from training. So you have to account for that in everything. Every time we get an injury here, we go back over all our data that we have and see where we could have got an indication. And, and nobody can predict injury. I, I know there's a, a couple force plate groups out there that think they can predict injury, and they've only looked at 128 jumps. So one, you only looked at 128 jumps. I get over 1,200 jumps every year during a season of my athletes. Right. Five jumps at least once a month for six months is well over 1,200 jumps. In the same article, you tell me that you can't account for those asymmetries that people don't get injured. Well, how the fuck can you predict? You can't predict anything. There could be indicators. And we look at our force plate and we look at indicators and the two biggest indicators we look at as a staff is obviously um, uh, eccentric deceleration rate of force development and eccentric braking. So there's a ton of eccentric work that's done in our program. And my everything I've learned on force plates has come from Matt Jordan, Canadian Sports Institute in Calgary, Canada. I, I think probably one of the leaders and Ryan Flaherty from Nike. Ryan, I used to bring Ryan to camp every year. We missed two years ago because he's with the basketball player of Zion and uh, we missed this year because of COVID. But Ryan has always been a valuable source of information for me. He will call and say, hey, here's what I'm getting on a force plate, especially during the season. So, you know what, buddy? He said, one thing you got to account, I always got to remind you, you got to account for fatigue in season. And when people become fatigued in season, jump strategy, you got to train drastically. You know, I, I constantly read every day, Ryan, I'm reading about this one organization where it's one team where my guys are running three miles faster every fucking in season. I'm like, no, they're not. You're telling me I can take my tight end who only runs at 15.9 miles per hour max velocity, and he's going to go to 18.9 miles per hour in season? How are you estimating it? Do you have an accelerator, accelerometer on? Do you have catapult? No. Well, how are you estimating? Well, we're guessing off a of film. Off a of fucking film? <laughs> You're fucking estimating for max velocity or, or miles per hour off a of fucking film? I said, you better be looking at at least 250 frames a second. Right. You don't even know the environmental circumstances of fucking of what's. Uh, there's no. You can't take into account the environment. So how are you telling me that your guys are running fast all year long and getting faster during the season, and you're you're, you're fucking looking at game film? Right. That's a, that's a crock of shit. And we, we don't know. I mean, let's be honest. There's people gaming those systems to get people to come to them so that they can become the guru that people come to, to oh, get yeah. improved. And so they're gaming, Hey, you know, one meter, just one meter off of that distance, right. Yep. Radically changes the outcome of what that time means on the stopwatch. And then we get into the whole idea of significant figures. If you don't have the right sig figs, you know, what are you basing that off of? You know, obviously maybe the time on the video, but again, we don't know the distance. And then the other thing I would argue is, great, they're moving faster. That's awesome. But they might be moving faster and look like like crap. And because they look like crap, they're going to be more likely to get hurt because now they're pushing what I would say is redlining the engine yep. a lot more. You know, like you put only so much nitrogen into that engine and eventually you're going to blow a piston out. You're going to fry your engine. So it looks nice temporarily, but it isn't set up to create an adaptation that's stable for the long haul that's useful for the entire season. Listen, when we look at our, our miles per hour during a week from practice, during games, and one way we can tell how we're managing fatigue probably during the course of the season is we're 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 games into the season or 14, 15, 16 weeks into the season, 
and our guys are still hitting 20, 21, 22 miles an hour in practice, and they're not in a fatigue state. But when we do hit a PR in anything, and if Evan tells me, he comes in and says, you know what, let's say Christian Hurt, when we played Dallas, had that long breakaway run on a deep route. And, you know, most non-track athletes are not going to hit max velocity in a sporting activity. I mean, we know that. We got a helmet on. We got we got pads. We got equipment. We got a ball in our hand. Right. There's somebody in our face. Uh, we're not running unabated straight down the track. We can't put blinders on. Heads on a swivel. There's 21 other people on that field at one time. Space is limited. But when we see new max velocities hit, that's a red flag to us that the next 24 to 48 hours, and if it's an older vet, that can be as long as 72 hours where the hamstrings and adductors are more prone to strains. So we have to go to our head coach. And that, and that totally fits what one of the people that you, you've mentioned, which is Dan Path, that fits the exact same philosophy. And I try to do that. I'm obviously in a high school setting. But Dan talks about you got to stabilize that new you because you yep. just super maximally perform beyond something you've ever done and that as you just said has a cost yeah it's awesome it'll be awesome for the rest of your life to say hey i went this fast this is freaking cool but it has a cost and so dan's like look we don't go back to the same we, we stabilize the training we don't change anything necessarily yeah. about the training except give extra recovery we're certainly not going to adjust our modalities up to another intensity level yeah. because we just hit this it's going to be more recovery more rest let's stabilize this person before we readdress what we're doing reload add whatever and or have an in expectation you know in terms of meters over time or time over meters whatever you want to look at and i think that that's really valuable because people don't think about that they want to no. then they want to press even more because they're like yep holy crap, I'm here. Now I want to get to the next one. Well, getting you to the next one might get you hurt. Could potent, And it could be just the smallest of percent that Listen, could do it. Charlie told me a long time ago, set a PR, what else are you going to accomplish for today? And here's really the problem in this country. Everybody to stimulate, adapt, stimulate, adapt, stimulate, adapt, stimulate, adapt, stimulate, adapt, and stabilize. Because stabilization may take some time. Right. You know, like I said before, we're too concerned with numbers. One thing I have learned and this is my, I got to correct you here, Ryan. This is my 42nd year of doing this. Oh, sorry. I started in 1980 with Coach Jackie Sherrill, who had a great vision, and literally hired me without permission from the athletic department. So I was hired in May. The athletic department redoes their budget in July. I didn't see my first paycheck till the end of August. So Coach Sherrill went on a limb, hired me, paying me, giving me money out of his own pocket. And so I love Jackie to death. If it wasn't for him and his vision, I wouldn't be where I'm at right now. But like I said, I've been around a lot of great, great coaches who have taught me a lot of different things. But the key is, how am I applying that to my athletes and my sport? How are we going about doing that? There's a lot that has to be taken into account. But I think the more you know, the more you have to account for. And the more you have to account for, the more overwhelming this can become. So the one thing I have learned in 42 years of doing this not about sets it's not about reps it's not about programming it's not about what i do high low it's not about whether i'm doing the latest greatest and you know we are a gimmick oriented fucking society boy we love oh, yeah. gimmicks oh, yeah. we love fancy we love circus acts but it comes down to what am i what work am i willing to put in to be the best mm -hmm. and a lot of people don't like to hear that word work they're looking for shortcuts they're looking for the easy way my mother taught me a long time ago, take the hard way. 
the hard way is more beneficial. You'll learn more. You're going to make mistakes and you're going to fail. She goes, accept it. You're going to fail. But you learn from your failures. I love when straight, I've never made a mistake in my life. I've never had anything fail. I've never had anybody pull a hamstring. And it's all bullshit. You're just trying to sell yourself. And that's the problem with our profession nowadays. Too many people on Instagram, too many people trying to be the guru, too many people trying to be the end all to be all. Let me tell you, if you're if you're a college strength coach and your seniors are still training in the same program you use as a freshman, you might just be a dumbass strength coach. Right. You, know, I, you can't. My older guys don't train the same as my younger guys here. So we'll have a program, and I write five different programs: right, offense, defense, alignment, because their hierarchy of qualities are different than our big skill. Tight ends, linebackers, their hierarchy of qualities are different than our skill. Uh, all their hierarchy of qualities are different from a quarterback, which is different from a kicker. But within those programs, there may be different things going on with different athletes. So you can't train a defensive end and, and account him as a D-line because defensive end has to run greater now. That's to run right. this, have to come off the edge. I'm working with Chandler Jones right now, and this is Chandler's going into his 10th year. Chandler and I were talking today. And Chandler goes, since I've been here, every year I get better and better in this room. I said, yeah, but it's my job to find things that will make you better. And most times, you know, Ryan, people will respond to intensity. People respond to volume or they respond to variation. I've, I've very, very solemnly met few that have gone with all three. But there's exceptions to every rule, as you know. But in college, they're killed with volume and intensity. They're just driven into the ground. And that's part of the head coach's fault. Because that's the environment the head coach is trying to create. I want them killed. I want them thrown up. If they're not thrown up, it's not a good workout. The biggest thing I found is variation when I change. What's that mean? Yeah. I just got to do a box step up with about 80 million different variations we come up with. We do box jumps here, and I love box jumps, but I got 800 fucking different ways to do a box jump. And it amazes me, guys who come from predominantly Olympic lifting programs can't jump on a fucking box and land. Right. Jumping is just a basic motor ability. It's a basic skill. You did it when you were five. And that, that again, that's what, we, what you and I talked about before. Technology drives me nuts because it's created a lazy environment. It's created lazy athletes. I mean, they play games on computers and parents are fucking idiots nowadays. Yeah. I mean, you know, Larry Fitzgerald, obviously Larry and I are Pitt brothers. We both graduated from the University of Pittsburgh, best spent. No, both spent extensive time there in the football program. And Larry was telling me when he first came to Pitt and I was at Cleveland, my first year in Cleveland, you know, the head coach was Walt Harris. And we were practicing three times a day with Walt. Try that nowadays, you'd be sued. Right. Somebody's fucking feelings. <laughs> uh, but Larry said he called his dad the first after the first couple of nights and said, I don't know if I can do this. You know what his dad said? He fucking hung up on him. Right. Larry told me that story about piss my pants. Cause that's something my mother would have done. That's old school. That's nowadays you, you, you get a kid call his parents like that, pack up the car, make some sandwiches, get some drinks. We got to right. go get them. We got to right. go get them. And guess what? Life ain't like that, Ryan. The fuck are you going to do when you get out in the real world and you get slapped in the face? Right. How are you going to respond? And, and that's the problem with society nowadays. The problem with everything. We're too easily offended. It all started with the participation trophy. When I grew up, you got cut. Right. As you go to First Bethel Methodist Church, the first month of baseball season, there were two sheets. You got cut, you made the team. I'd breathe right. a sigh of relief when I see I made the team because you didn't know. Right. And, and, and I've competed in bodybuilding. One of the things I admire, I admire about before every bodybuilding show, 
you have competitors meeting and the judges will stand in front of you and say, if you don't like your placing, work harder. Mm-hmm. You don't hear that nowadays. You don't hear, you know, people just want to bitch and moan and blame everybody for their decisions they make because they don't want to suffer and handle the consequences. I mean, in bodybuilding, I was fortunate enough when I first started training, uh, one of the big influences on my career and my life was a guy named Jimmy Mannion. And if you know Jim Mannion, he's the NPC physique chairman. He's the president of all bodybuilding. He runs all bodybuilding across the world. But he let me train in his gym for free because I had no money. Just graduated from college. My mother was poor. We didn't come from, you know, my parents got divorced. My dad was so generous. He declared bankruptcy so he wouldn't have to support us. Oh, geez. We had no money. Car repossessed, furniture repossessed. But I said, Jimmy, I said, look, Jimmy, I'll come in the gym after. Everybody's gone. I'll clean your gym for you if I could just train here. Because I, I have, I just started working at Pitt. I've got a paycheck. And he said, don't worry about it. I would give him tickets. But I became very close with Jimmy. And, you know, I got to see some of the greatest people in the world train. And you learn from strong people. And you right. learn what not to do, but you also learn what to do. You know, I got to learn. I, I remember spotting Tony Atlas on the bench for 500 pounds for three reps when the professional wrestlers came into time. That's where all they trained. And I, asking Ivan Putski about his squat routine. Yeah. And it was just fascinating to hear everybody's different perspective of what, how they trained, what they trained, how they trained, but what they thought they needed for themselves. I think when you talk about training, you're going to have responders and non-responders. The right, biggest right. benefit I have is every time I run an acceleration program, I send it to Chidi. Chidi and a coach at Altus, and he critiques yep. it. I sent my EDT block, my escalated density training block, which was just finishing, to Milo and had Milo critique it because I value their input. I want to get somebody else's perspective. And I want I don't want people to tell me, oh, looks great. I don't want people to tell me that's what it should be right there. God, I wish I could do it. I don't want that. Tell me what the fuck is wrong with me. Right. You know, tell me where I can get better. When I first came here in Arizona, first person I reached out to is Frank Rizzo, who was a sprinters and hurdlers coach at Iowa State. Frank was a GA for me. And I said, I want to get in touch with Dan Path. So before I even laid foot in Arizona, Ryan, I had called Dan Path. My first two weeks being here, I went over to Altus, which was the World Athletic Center at the time. Right. So I got to meet Dan and Stu and Andreas and Jason and, and Chidi. And, you know, I, my first couple of weeks, I just, I didn't ask a question. I just watched. Right. I was in awe at the mount of the guy. You know, his ability to uh, correct, his ability to, his eyes, ability to pick things up, his great, his heightened level of observation, his heightened ability to correct things. I just watched the guy coach. I learned more doing that than sitting down and asking questions. And then I would ask questions. But I learned more watching Dan Path coach than anything else. And again, I was very fortunate in my 1997 to meet a guy named Louis Simmons. And Louis came to Pitt. And I've done the, the program where my first three years at Pitt, we were 33 and three. Mm-hmm. Hardest thing I did, Ryan, I tell the story all the time, open the door and turn the lights on. <laughs> it's hard to be a sniper. You got a fucking great athlete. Alabama got five deep in every position. How fucking right. hard is that? Right. You know, when you're in a program where you're not getting the best of the best, you got to find ways and create ways for them to become better athletes. A Pinto is still going to be a Pinto because you can still soup up that engine. Right. You know what I mean, you can still refine it and make it look better. You can teach. I'm a firm believer. You can teach proper printing skills to anybody. Their outputs are going to be different as is their contract muscle contractile velocities. You know, anybody can, I can take a three-year-old. He can put force into the ground. Right. It comes down to those contractile velocities, how fast. And like Dan says, there's a bandwidth. So 
I think you could teach anybody to properly the context now to run faster. And that's the one motor ability we all desire is to run. I was blessed. I had speed, but I also had a great track coach. I was doing plyos when I was 14 years of age. So when I went to college, you know, my, my best time in hundred meters was under 10, five, which is back in the late seventies, which ain't bad. It's That's fast for that time period. Yeah. Not gonna be, yeah. yeah. Not going to be anything now, but when I went to pit back to pit and I think 97, that's where I met Louis Simmons. And, you know, he came to the university of Pittsburgh with Dave Tate and Ryan lit, ripped me an asshole for four hours, <laughs> four straight fucking hours. I got berated. And the funny thing was when we were leaving, Dave Tate grabs me by the arm and says, don't worry about it. He likes you. <laughs> Two weeks later, Milo and I were, were traveling to Westside. First thing I see when I walk, Milo and I sit down at Westside, Chuck Vogelbull doing seated good morning, seated now, good morning, 500 pounds or 10 reps. I'm like, oh, okay. boy, I have no idea what strength is. Right. And I started talking to Louie. I said, I need to know what you did in the beginning. I need to understand your evolution of a coach. So at home, I still have this little folder, green folder, spiral bound with every article he ever wrote for Powerlifting USA. And he told me to get the book, Science and Practice of Strength Training by Vladimir Zatorsky. So I did. And I had actually traveled to Penn State on two different occasions to visit Vladimir Zatorsky, which is where I got the definition. If it yields an adaptation to what you're trying to improve, it's functional. Right. So why is there a functional strength coach? Because you train on one leg. When I sprint, I land on one leg. So it, it all comes down to context and how are you using it? All programs work. They only work for so long. Nothing works forever. There's no miracle out there. The Soviets are not holding some top secret double probation never seen before <laughs> training program in the basement of guys smoking cigarettes and drinking vodka that we've never seen. <laughs> Everything new is old. I was doing Nordic hamstring curls back in high school. It was called Russian leans. But I had a high school right. track coach that was smart enough to put us on a hill. So we had a good arm so far. And the stronger yeah. we got, he just brought us down off an incline. But I've seen those. There isn't anything new. A kettlebell is just a fucking med ball with a handle. Mm -hmm. That's all, you know, and people forget those kettlebells were just used in gulags and gulags, and they were held up old signs in the old Soviet Union. But there's just too much, too much BS on the internet nowadays. You gotta be real careful. You got to be real careful what you're looking at, you know, because too many people trying to sell their methods, trying to sell their systems. But like I said, 97 and then through Louie, I met Charlie Francis. I called Charlie's phone one day and his wife, Angela, answered it. I explained to her who I was. So he gave me his private cell phone number and I call him and fucking Charlie's sitting in a commode. I said, Charlie, you have time? He goes, well, I'm sitting on a crapper, but I'll talk to you. So for the next hour, he must be, his ass had to be sore as hell because he didn't get off the shitter. So many questions that I was talk, talking to him and asking him about. Some yeah. of our greatest thoughts, right? Yeah, honest to God. Listen, some of my greatest thoughts are when I remove myself from this environment and go to Lifetime Fitness mm. uh, because they have a Smith machine. And yeah, I use a Smith machine. So fuck all you people who think Smith machine is not existing. When you get to be 64 years of age, you'll fucking live on a Smith machine. <laughs> but I get some of my best ideas when I'm training because the brain actively continue to solve your issues, even though you're not focusing on. It. Right. So there's courses of time. There's times when I'm in lifetime that all of a sudden I, I've, I've come up with the answer. Yep. The other reason I go to lifetime is because it really reaffirms my affirmation of why I hate people so much. <laughs> because I go to lifetime. And people are not normal people. I'm like, now I know why I hate all you motherfuckers. The one bench press. 
the five guys standing around with their leg up on it having a conversation know, about who's got the bigger this or that you know it's, it's the one girl that sits on my smith machine and does 20 sets of 10 hip thrusters i don't care how many hip thrusts you do on a smith <clears throat> it's not gonna get no better until you decide to stop putting fucking chocolates and wine in your mouth <laughs> and then you get the people who take 12 different areas up you know they take the dumbbells and they take this bosu ball and they do their own circuit and they think they're the only person in a gym and i'm using that right now where the person puts a towel on a machine and walks away for 20 minutes right <laughs> you know i had a guy do that the other day i took the towel off i started working as i was using it. i said don't have your fucking name on it yeah. i said you want to work in i'll be glad to work in with you and he got all pissy with me you know i grew up in manny's gym where bodybuilders shared machines you want to yes. go ahead do a set I'm resting yep. right now. If you want to work in, I don't care. Work in. There's no skin off my back. I'm not, you know, it's just. My old man was a power lifter and he was uh, the heavyweight police Olympic champion. I think it was in 88. And he's a law enforcement officer for his whole career. He had good numbers. He's a big guy. You know, he, uh, he was, he was huge. I mean, he looked like a vanilla gorilla. I mean, one of the biggest men I've ever, ever been around. And you know, so when we had the arguments of whose dad could beat up whose dad, I always won. And then if my and then somehow random chance, your dad's a martial artist and can kick my dad in the nose, he's still got a gun. So, you know, I win that one too. But the funniest thing is, you know, he would tell guys in the weight room when they're hanging around the bench and he's like, you guys are done. And they're like, no, we're not done. I still got three sets. He goes, I don't think you understand. He goes, you've been here for 45 minutes and you've not yeah. let us work in. He goes, you're done. Yeah. So I trust me. The, the best of humanity can be seen in a, in a gym where people are trying to straighten out their life and change yep. their life and get healthy and the absolute worst narcissists and unaware individuals yeah. are there as well. So you talked about a lot about Louis. So what are some of the things that Louis really has done to influence you? I mean, obviously the ability, the understanding of almost being mind blown in what humans can do. I went through that experience as well. We went to, uh, you know, an Olympic trials for track and field. And I just, in, in the NCAA nationals uh, indoors, because I had an athlete that thankfully was an All-American. And it just blew my mind when I saw some of this and what people are capable of. And so that kind of resonates with me as well. And, and so for you, what were some of the things that Lil, Louis really did for you in terms of kind of changing what you're doing, influencing you, driving you to certain concepts? The biggest thing I first realized when Milo and I walked in there is number one, a competitive environment. Number two, the way they help each other. And number three, they're on God level of strength. But let me say this about strength, especially maximal strength. Your strength potential, Ryan, is only as useful as your ability to display it in a short amount of time. So it takes three to four tenths of a second to develop voluntary maximal force. Yeah, my guys participate in a sport that it has to be displayed 25 hundredths of a second. So always chasing maximal strength, I think, is a mistake. Uh, people, what people don't realize about Westside is only 10% of their work is maximal effort work. They're known for all the different maximal effort exercises and the, the loads and the amount of weight they can handle. Maybe 20%, but the rest of the time is all repetition method and bringing up their weaknesses. I have fast athletes, despite our inefficient mechanic. I think the biggest mistake, especially in college, and, and not only college, but, and I wrote some notes down here, is we ask our athletes to get bigger in the off season, bigger, stronger, faster. Uh, we wanna increase cross-sectional diameter of the fiber. And in non-related track activities, as you and I talked about, 
very solemnly do they run full speed. They very solemnly hit max velocity. They very solemnly go faster, go beyond 30 meters in full speed. But I think you must address max velocity all year round. And the reason I say that, and one of the things we concentrate on, and one of the things I concentrate on, and the Marcus sitting here with me, I think the first two blocks, first two blocks of training was just explosive first step and rapid acceleration. We put some things in place to build off of that. But I think, you know, as the athlete experiences developments in strength, power, growth, like I said, growth in muscle tissue, your lever system changes. And obviously, because you've gotten bigger and stronger, when your lever system changes, if you don't have any speed work in place or you're not working on speed, you're not working on acceleration all year long, I think you can significantly alter technical abilities and develop those sprint mechanics adversely affected. So I think the biggest mistake college strength coaches make or or most strength coaches is they hold off speed to before they go to camp. We work on speed all year round here. Now in season, we're getting it. And like Gidan Pass says, the sport fills in a lot of gaps for us and we get it during practice. Uh, We'll do some easy power speed work uh, just in our warm up phase before practice. But I think if you're not training acceleration, you're not working on speed all year round, you're making a drastic mistake with your athletes, especially non-track athletes. And we put that in place a number of different ways here. And I could spend probably the next two days talking to you about it. But one of the things we do here, and especially when you talk about the neuromotor patterns of sprinting, they will change drastically, especially as guys get bigger. And like I said, their lever system changes. But one of the things we did here, <laughs> and I've done it for the past three years, and you know, funny, I talked to Tommy Mazinski about it. Tommy said, great idea, but they ain't going to do it. <laughs> I, I get a lot of guys who do do it nowadays. We have a two-week transition phase into time off. Hmm. I think abruptly stopping anything, Ryan, is detrimental to the system. It's like driving your car at 120 miles an hour into a brick wall and abruptly stopping. Is that good for it? Well, that makes you think it's good enough for the human body. The human body is expecting to play that Sunday. So allow it to gradually wind down after the season. And all it is is Charlie Francis' bike tempo for two weeks. We do some easier robo work on a bike because the aerobic system is the fastest to recover. It creates blood flow, circuitry response. We do some mobility and some body weight exercise. If I have guys that want to start training after that, Ryan, which I had a significant number, but the next two weeks, we just went up to all band work. Mm-hmm. Band push-ups, band push-downs, band face pulls, band leg curls, band biceps. We did everything with a band along with general mobility work and movement patterns. So that led me into the first block of our training, which is just an increase of what that was, a general physical preparation work and just did two weeks of a mixed circuit training. All I'm trying to do is heighten their level of general work capacity. You know, people say, what's work? I know what work is. Work capacity is the ability of the human body to perform work of intensities and durations using appropriate, uh, appropriate energy system. That's what work capacity is. All I was trying to do is build on that and start to put in place to, to allow for more intensive work to be done. People forget muscles adapt to strength before connective tissue. What really irritated me this year, and I actually sent a, the player a text, and I told him, if this continues, I'm going to show up and beat your personal trainer's ass. That's yeah. how mad I was. You just come off of intense, six months of intensive work. You took two weeks off, and I know you didn't do the, the transition program, and then you went on a cruise. I know you didn't do nothing there. The first day back in the gym, he's doing repeat vertical jumps on, on a um, Vertimax. Now, think about that. 
Do you think his tissue is ready for that? Do you think his nervous system is ready for that? Do you think his tendons and ligaments are ready and the ability to the joint absorb and withstand it? Do you think any part of his fucking body is ready for that? Well, and that speaks to, and that speaks exactly to what we're talking about with these trainers and the Instagram generation and the gadgets. I mean, that might be peak 2020-21 terrorists, as you call them, yeah. type of problems and personal trainers who are like so anxious to like, okay, now I finally get to prove how good I am. Yeah. I get to throw my gadgets. I get to show my value that I can do something special here. And, oh, when you're really sore, see, look how much better I'm going to make you because you've been this and that. And we, buddy, as well in my program, <laughs> I, coach, I coach kids that basically train all year round. Because of that, I want my breaks in the season to be planned. And so our transition phase, same idea. I tell the kids, look, I want you to the last, you know, your last season, you've already been peaked to that at the end of the season. But then when we bounce out of that, I don't want you to stop doing everything. I want you to cross train and we've got different modes and methodology. We use the deep water running. We use the elliptical machine. We do bike riding instead of running on the ground under load, you know, and then we lower that amount to where we might have a week where there's very, very little physical activity, but they're still walking. There's still some general core work at home, things that they can do. Um, and again, I like core that's where the athletes are standing up as opposed to on flat on their back, which has no functional real uh, ability other than strengthening these muscles in, an in, in a non-functional way. And I know we just talked about what's functional, but I, I would rather have that core come from an upright body position with conscientious tension through running drills and those types of things. And then when we get back into it, then we start to add back in the traditional track and field training or distance running training or sprint training or whatever they're trying to do. So there's never this like abrupt stop because you think about it like our holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, right? People get sick, not just because, you know, the weather is changing. They get sick because they stop doing all of the things that are part of their normal routine that help them stay healthy. Let me interject something real quick. We tell our guys this. Uh, especially during the bye week. When you disrupt the rhythm of stress and adaptation, the body dives deeper down into the rabbit hole of recovery. When it dives deeper down to the rabbit hole of recovery, the neuroimmune system is adversely affected and takes a break. So you're exposed to anything. And that's a big problem I have with people just stopping training. You're still, your people are still continuing to do something. When you just stop, who knows how long it's going to take to reboot the system? Now, Dan Paff is, I work with elite athletes. Some guys can reboot it in two weeks. Some guys never reboot it. So you can't never stop doing anything. It's just periods of intensive work and periods of non-intensive work. There's a time and place for everything. I have one of my defensive ends is just constantly, when are we going to go heavy? When are we going to go heavy? I said, when I fucking tell you we're going to go heavy. <laughs> We're gradiating the, the exposure to stress. So today, here's what he said to me. He goes, boy, I feel great. I'm like, yeah. It's the fucking way you're supposed to feel. There's eustress and there's distress. Eustress should be a part of training. It should make you feel good. You shouldn't be dragging your, uh, your ass out of a gym, soaked in sweat, vomiting, your tongue dragging on the ground. That's not training. It doesn't take a genius to train somebody into the ground. Right. But it takes somebody with a thought processing, understanding the thought process that, Every day is subject to change. And it's based on what you display. So Charlie told me a long time ago, it's three opinions, opinion of the athlete, opinion of the coach, opinion of the athlete's body. Who are you going to listen to? 
Because the athlete, no matter what, if they're a great athlete or they're, they'll tell you, I feel great. Mm-hmm. But your body's telling me something different. The question now becomes, am I listening? So, you know, I was working with Chandler, again, Chandler Jones today. He's recovering from a torn bicep during the season. In about, I guess, about 12 weeks into the season, I said, Chandler, you've had your surgery. It's time to start training again. You know what he said? Okay. Right. Didn't question me. He's been training ever since. So today he came in. And, I, and I, I pay attention to what he does rehab-wise, too, because that is also a stress on the system. Just like when you lay on a table, physiotherapy work is a stress to the system. And if you think about it, all the phys- foam roller, the cross balls, grasping, percussion training, or the, or the, the hypervolts, massage, shiatsu, deep tissue, or flushing, it all has one thing in common, pressure and release. Right. Oh, it is. So I think people get carried away with that, but... You can have a great massage therapist. You can increase your volume by over 20% during the week, increase your intensity. All uh, So I increase your volume by up to 40% intensity by, intensity by another 20% if you have a good massage therapist. That's why I said one thing I'm not against in the offseason is massage work. I think that's always valuable all year round. But like you said, you can't take time off because if you do, it takes harder to get back to that level. Sometimes guys don't get back to that level. That's why I told Shannon, I said, strength gained anywhere, strength gained everywhere, buddy. We're yep. talking about the strength of the organism. We're talking about the entire, every system in the body, which is interdependent on every system. No system works independent of the other systems. All systems depend on all every system in the body. It's a unique, oppor- unique opportunity for us to engage those other systems to support the recovery of what your, your surgery and the injury you had this year. Believe it or not, our PT came to me the other day. He says he's making rapid progress. I really think part of the rapid progress is he's never stopped training. Right. You know, he had the surgery. He came in for treatment. And I got right. As soon as my, my, I asked my head trainer, I said, I want to start. And he said, yeah, that's fine. He went right at it. Now, I graduated, continued to gradient his exposure to the stimuli. But anything you do, any type of stimuli, stimuli you provide to human body, Ryan, you're going to get a response. Whether it's good or it's bad, you're going to get a response. And let me back up because you train with high school athletes. High school athletes have no business specializing in any sport unless it's an artistic sport. Dance, diving, gymnastics. Those are different stories. And by their very nature, they provide variety too, right? Exactly. Exactly. Especially a gymnast. You're all around gymnasts. Look at the different variations of movement patterns you're doing. Plus, your body has external resistance. Which right. if you can't do that, why are you put a barbell in your hand? Too many parents want to put a barbell in the hand too quick. But all new movements are developed on the basis or links of old coordination. The greater the stock or pull of old reflective driving links, the greater mobility is developed. You know what I just said? Let your kid play multiple sports. Right. They say, well, I'm just going to have him lift weights in the offseason. Good, he'll become a better weightlifter. Doesn't mean he's going to become a better fucking athlete. Right. You know, there's a lot of other things, especially that are important in a very sensitive time period when they're going through puberty and they're going through adolescence, those are extremely sensitive periods of time for athletes to acquire skills and to build on those skills. If I was a college recruiter, I'd never kid. I would never recruit a kid that just played one sport. And my lineman, I'd look for somebody here through the shot and disc or wrestle. Right. My skilled people. Did you run track? Did you play basketball? Speed breeds speed. One speed, go run track for go go out for the track team because you're going to get faster and you're going to get better just by the sheer nature of people being around you. It's like if you if you train with weak people, you think you're going to get strong, right? No, you want to get strong, train with strong people. 
That's what I've done all my life. I don't look for somebody that I'm going to be stronger than. I look for somebody who's going to be stronger than me. One of my best training partners I've ever had was a guy named John Seaman, uh, who lives in Tampa now. And he was one of those guys that was like Mark Stepnowski, just a genetic gifted presser. He could press the world off his chest. <laughs> he was just incredible in his ability to press. And it made me train harder, made me work harder because he was stronger. So it just rubbed off on me. I got stronger. So if you want to get fast, train with fast people. Don't go out and look for somebody slow. And there's periods of time, especially the window's opportunity for speed, <clears throat> according to Esteban Bali. For a girl, it's six to eight. For a boy, seven to nine. For a girl, it's 11 to 13. For a male, it's 13 to 16. Those periods of time, those windows of opportunity, you got to take advantage of those. Right. So let your kids play multiple sports. <laughs> let them develop multiple abilities. When I was growing up with my brothers. We played football. We played tackle football, which God forbid you do that nowadays. Somebody would sue you because you're tackling somebody. <laughs> we played street hockey. We played baseball, wiffle ball in my front yard. We actually built a long jump pit in my side of my house. We had the Olympics. So the around my block was exactly 200, a little over 200 yards. But still, depending on which way you ran, you'd run up a hill, down a hill, up a hill, down a hill. So it was resistance and overspeed training. Now I wouldn't do overspeed training with an elite athlete. I would never do that. Increase breaking your front foot, decrease rear leg push off, display center mass. I don't believe in that. You know, Charlie used to talk about that all the time. I don't believe in jumping on a treadmill and just holding on for dear life, trying to educate right. my nervous system to go faster because that's it's not going to happen. I think that method has been proven in, uh, as not being able to produce the results it said it would. You know, I think the process of attaining speed, as you and I know, is a long, tedious, hard process. It's not mm -hmm. fucking easy. Just because you went on the internet and bought these speed bands, that doesn't mean you're going to get faster. And I, you know, uh, you've uh, probably heard me talk a thousand times here. And I don't mean to almost uh, close out here, but I can't stand a foot ladder. Mm -hmm. I can't. And when I call it a speed ladder, what? You go, you go, you short, choppy steps. You go nowhere fast. It's, yeah, it's a gyration ladder. It's not a speed ladder. Yeah, it's, it's, well, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It looks like it's an epileptic fit. Right. I've never seen one of those motor abilities in any sport. I, I just think it's a waste of time. It's redundant. It's just if you don't know what to do. I, I know a strength coach or somebody doesn't know what, really what to do and talk about speed. And they pull out a foot ladder. <laughs> it's fixed restraints that mimic the stride length of a, a toddler. Right. And Bruce Schneckstein, I think the world of also has helped me drastically. Foot speed equated to sprinting speed and piano players that have the fastest fastballs. Right. Plus, there's no forces produced at the hip. You want to fun run faster, go out and sprint. Work on a mechanical application. We do some type of power speed drill every day here. And we do dribbling on low intensive days because you limit extension through the hips, hamstrings, and groin, the adductors. So our dribbling days are on our low intensive days. Our right. high intensive days, we're doing A skips, B skips, and we're sprinting. We're actually doing acceleration work. We're actually doing max velocity work. Where my guys in a max velocity, especially my skill guys, they're getting a 30 yard building because it takes that long for them to develop max velocity, especially skill guys. Now, for linemen, it's different. So the context is going to be different. But you can't right. tell me you're having your athlete run 10 yards. All of a sudden, he's hitting max velocity after 10 yards. Because everything I've seen, and Ken Clark has talked about, I think you've talked about, you're only going to be at 60% of max velocity by 10 meters. Right. In a power speed sport or football, they're going to be at 82 to 84% by 20 meters. By 30 meters, they're 94% of max velocity. Unlike an elite sprinter who we all saw the same bolt feathers his acceleration out to 60, 70 fucking meters. Right. And it was he who decelerates the least is going to win the 100 meters in the Olympics. So right. 
I don't look at the differences between elite sprinters. Well, I look at the commonalities. What's common? Well, they all sprint. There's a shocker. They all lift. Okay. But they don't always lift maximally. I love when people tell me sprinters are jacked. I don't right. think it's Bolt's jacked. Lohan yeah. Blake is jacked. Asafa Powell is jacked. But there's a Carl Lewis is not jacked. Carl Lewis never went in the right room. How do you explain yeah, that? He was just he was just cut and lean and through the actions that you're you're doing on the body at that speed, at that intensity, creates a body that looks like that that may trick you into thinking they're weight guys, when in reality, it's just the nature of the sport that builds a particular type of strength and physique. They have the best developed hamstrings because their ability to sprint. Right. Uh, when you talk about Jack, I think about Jack, people like Jay Cutler. Yep. <laughs> you know, Ronnie Coleman. That's fucking jacked in my book yeah. because I've been on stage. That's jacked. Just, you know, some of these guys, oh, he's jacked. No, he's not. He's fucking lean. Mm-hmm. He's skinny, but he's not fucking jacked. <laughs> all sprinters are jacked i hate to break that news to everybody <laughs> Devers is jacked you know you're either gonna be long lean elastic or short stocky and strong right and it's a long lean elastic i'd rather be instead of short stocky and strong because the more muscle you have more energy you spend to cover that ground right think about that muscle is energy costly you know the more you have so we talk about mass specific force applied into the ground when we talk about improving speed Mm-hmm. So my best, one of the things I use, my guys, my skill guys are always doing some variation of chin-ups constantly. I love chin-ups because I think it's the greatest indicator of relative body strength or how strong they can be or how strong they are and how that can relate to speed. I think that's a better indicator than pulling out a foot ladder. Right. And again, the stopwatch never lies, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, force plate doesn't lie. Force plate tells me everything I need to know at a specific point in time. And we test them on a force plate when they're fresh, but we also test them on a force plate when they're fatigued. Because being fatigued tells me greater information than when they're fresh. Right. And we do address asymmetries in the during the season. It's just a very, very low volume of work. If anything, it's just to get the brain's attention. And that's all it is. And it's more isometric work and eccentric work that's done at the beginning of the week where I know I have the rest of the week to help them recover. But anyway, listen, I hate to cut this short. Uh, I got to get a haircut. <laughs> That's a problem I don't have to worry about as much, buddy. You know, well, neither are do similar, I. I'm though. fucking bald, but I look like both <laughs> fucking now. You are so. similar, man. <laughs> I'm going to run over to my, because I'm going to go visit my daughter in Florida this week. So I want to look spiffy clean. I understand that completely. Well, buddy, uh, Coach Morris, I really appreciate. No, please call me, buddy. Don't call me. You, Coach you, being, you being here with us today. And the audience is going to get a lot out of this in terms of the reality of what we need to do and what we need to focus on as coaches in the world of strength and conditioning and speed. For those who are listeners, please make sure that you're sharing these stories out, you're subscribing, you're sharing with the friends, because if we don't get this truth out to people, then we're limiting the opportunities to influence others who are going to be coaching your sons and daughters or a friend or someone else down the line. And it is our responsibility to get that message out. So to all the listeners, thank you so much to to Buddy, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Brian, thank you for the honor. It's been a privilege. Thank you, thank you. That's what we need our best coaches. We need our best coaches on a developmental phase, the developmental process, not, not at the elite levels.
We really yeah, don't. we need that and exactly. And I believe we need that connective tissue between, you know, the development up to the college and to the pros and having these conversations with people like you and guys like me who are kind of on the opposite ends of the of the career timeline, I think is crucial. So I think a lot of people are going to get stuff out of this to see how it does cross over between one end of the timeline to the other. And I think that's fantastic. So thanks yeah, again. Well, Ryan, here's the one thing I want to leave you with. True intelligence is not what you know, it's what you do when you don't know. That's right. That's a good note to end on. So, but I appreciate your time. Thanks, brother. Have a good <laughs> Thank day. Thank you too, buddy. You have a great day. Appreciate right, it. Bye. bye now.